0: Okay, welcome back. My name is Jamie, and this is the British History Podcast. And I know I've been gone for a few days. I'm sorry about that. Life intervened. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you probably know exactly what happened. And if you're not, it's probably a mystery to you. So you might want to fix that. Okay, well, let's get right to it, because I'm kind of excited to talk about this. We've got a lot of people to cover and not a lot of time to do it in. So, as you might have gathered from the title, we're gonna be talking about Chalin today. Now, from all this discussion of various Anglo-Saxon leaders, you might have noticed that while I've been saying Chinnerich, Cherdich, and Chalin, with C being a CH sound, we also have this Cutha fellow in Wessex, and we have Creota in Mercia. And there the C is pronounced with a hard C rather than a CH. So what's the deal there? I mean, if you're a member and are reading through the rough transcripts, you were probably expecting me to say Chatha and "triota," But no, from my reading, it's Katha. And now you might be wondering why there is that shift. And a linguist will probably be able to give you a more complete answer than I can, but as far as I can tell, Old English approaches spelling the same way Modern English does. Why are we spelling it this way? Because f*** you, that's why. There's a reason why English has a reputation for being one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. But at least when you're wondering why rough and tough and doe and though all have O-U-G-H at the end, but completely different sounds, you'll know that stupid spelling has been with us for a very long time. Alright, so last time we spoke about Chalun, you might remember that he and Cuthwine had just won the Battle of Durham. And this was important because it cut the Welsh off from parts of the Midlands, opened the Severn Valley to Anglo-Saxon settlers, and cut Wales off from the Cornish Peninsula. So basically, it was all bad news for the Brits. And that was on the heels of Cuthwulf, who was probably Chollin's brother, winning the battle at Bedkin Ford, which gave them control of four villages. So bad news for the Brits there, too. And even that was on the heels of Chalin defeating that young rascal, Athelbert, and chasing him back into Kent. But at least that wasn't bad news for the Brits. It was just bad news for Kent. But what you're probably noticing here is that Chalin is doing pretty well, isn't he? And he's a Bretwalda to boot. I bet those West Saxons loved him. Well, there's a funny thing about Anglo-Saxon power. Like we spoke about in earlier episodes, ruling was built upon the consensus of powerful people in society. Well, I suppose that's always the case. I mean, when you get right down to it, the only reason why anyone is rich and powerful is because enough people believe them to be. But it was definitely more systemic among the Anglo-Saxons than it is in our modern culture. It was really built into their system. So if the thanes started to get antsy, your grip on power might be a little bit shaky. And like we spoke about earlier, the kinning, or king, had a wide variety of responsibilities. But a big one was ensuring the prosperity of the people. Or at least, the people who mattered. And that meant ensuring a good harvest. If there was a drought or something, the people would start to go hungry, and that wasn't good for anyone. And the existence of a bad harvest might be taken as a sign that the gods had turned against the kinning, and a change was needed. But it wasn't just food. It was also the prosperity that came from battle. Don't forget that a good king was a giver of rings, which meant that he needed to provide his werod with suitable gifts. And naturally, that meant either having tremendous amounts of wealth, often due to controlling trade centers, or gaining that wealth through conquest and battle. By winning in battle, a king could show his worth as a commander and also demonstrate he had the favor of the gods. And it seems like Chalin had been doing that. And according to the Chronicle, it looks like he wanted to expand upon his success by fighting the British at Fratherna. Now where this battle took place isn't exactly certain, but Stenton believes that it was in northeastern Oxfordshire. So by looking at a map, it looks like Chalin was looking to expand his holdings northward. And this certainly would have increased his power and prestige. But it also looks like it was a bit of an overreach. Even the territory taken by the earlier Battle of Durham was notoriously hard to hold and would eventually end up being slowly annexed by Mercia. So going north seems like a bit of an odd move, though hindsight is twenty twenty, And maybe he thought that he'd be able to hold both the Severn Valley and the lands to the north. Or maybe there was some British settlement that was growing in power that was causing him some concern and he wanted to stamp that out. Or maybe he wasn't too popular with his thanes, and he wanted to demonstrate his worth by conquering another region. Whatever the cause, Chalin and Cutha fought against the British at 584 at Frethurna. And the Anglo-Saxon chronicle paints a rather strange picture of what happened. The chroniclers tell us that in that battle, Cutha was killed. So that doesn't sound too good. But then they tell us that Chalin took a great amount of wealth and territory So it sounds like it might have gone pretty well, until they followed it up with the fact that he, quote, retreated to his own people, end quote. And that really isn't the sort of behavior we've come to accept from conquering warlords. I mean, when you take territory, you hold it. You don't retreat. Not if you won. So what's going on there? Well, something to keep in mind is that the chroniclers were writing to please the line of Wessex, probably actually Alfred the Great. So saying, oh man, did Chawlin ever get his ass handed to him in that battle, probably wouldn't have been overly appreciated. After all, the Chronicle is essentially the story of the House of Wessex, plus a few extra tidbits, and it was probably intended to be bolstering material for why Alfred and his line were destined to rule England, why they were a great family, and from the line of great warriors. So it's a bit biased. And honestly, I cannot emphasize that enough. Sometimes I get people asking me what my primary sources are for this period, but the truth is, we don't have any. We have secondary sources. I mean, what we're reading about from this period wasn't written at the time. We have old sources, but they're still secondary. And they're being written for a purpose. So we can't know for sure what is being spun, what is being omitted, and what is just being outright fabricated. All we can do is keep in mind that, at least in part... What we're relying upon are almost like propaganda pieces. So what I'm getting at here is the chroniclers might have been downplaying what happened with Chalin's battle at Fratherna. It might have gone really badly. It's also possible that he won, but the victory was just too costly, or maybe it just gained too little, and thus it caused disruptions at home. I mean, if a whole bunch of thanes died, including Kutha, and all he managed to get is maybe one crappy little village or, you know, a small handful of iron bits, well, that's not very good. It's going to cause people to be a little bit grouchy about the whole thing. Why did we bother fighting in the first place? This didn't go too well. So maybe there's that. Or maybe there were already disruptions, and following the battle, he had to go and abandon the territory he took to go home and deal with it. Any number of things could have happened. But whatever happened, we can be relatively certain that we're seeing signs that Chalin's political power was beginning to disintegrate. But Wessex isn't the only kingdom we've been talking about. What about life in the north? <coughs> oh dear, there goes Frithuwald. So it's 585, and now Hussa is king of Bernicia. And that's actually rather interesting because we have no idea who Hussa is. Was he the son of Ida? Maybe but he also might have just been a part of a rival dynasty. It's entirely unclear. And right around this point, we have Sled becoming the king of the East Angles. Besides having an excellent name, Sled also married Ricola. Ricola. And Ricola was the sister of Athelbert of Kent. And actually, Sled's father had a rather Kentish name himself, Irkinwine or Aeskwine which has led some to argue that he might have been a branch of the upper classes of Kent. And that could account for his marriage to a princess of Kent. So to recap, Wessex is a little bit shaky. Up in the north, people keep on dying because, you know, they're the sons of Ida and that's what they do. And down in the south, you have another kingdom, the East Angles, who seem to be allying with Kent. And Kent is not overly fond of Wessex, as proven by the fact that Athelbert had earlier invaded Wessex. And that alliance might be because of a dynastic connection. But regardless of whether there was a dynastic connection, this marriage could not have been taken as good news by Chalin. I mean, that invasion wasn't too long ago, and Athelbert still had to be at least a bit grouchy about getting chased out of Wessex. And now it looks like he's got an alliance with another southern kingdom. And meanwhile, Chalin looks like he's got troubles back at home. Things are not good. But it could be worse. They're down in the south. They could be up north. And it's not just Bernicia. You've got another kingdom up in the north. We have Diera. In fact, right now we have the first evidence of Diera. Well, we're told that Ela, king of Diera, died in 588. Now, Ela wasn't the first ruler of Diera. In fact, we're told that he was actually the great 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 grandson of the first king of Diera, a man by the name of Samil. Though chances are he wasn't really the first king of Diera, he was probably just the first culturally Germanic person to rule in Diera, and that's all assuming that he actually existed, which is not exactly certain. I mean, if you do the math, having Ayla be his great-great-great-grandson would mean that Samuel was ruling at around the first half of the 5th century. To put that in perspective, that's right around the time that Rome had withdrawn, And consequently, if Samuel was Germanic in culture, that would mean that he would have been one of the first of the settlers, maybe even before Hengist and Horsa, and it would have meant that Germanic settlement would have happened much farther north than we generally assumed it to be, and it would mean that we had a Germanic kingdom before we have a record of one. So the record is a bit dodgy. And maybe Samuel was a fabricated name to disguise the fact that Ayla's family had ties to a prior British ruling dynasty. Like, maybe they took the Romano-British name and just made it a little bit more Germanic. Or maybe the existence of Samuel was just an outright lie, along the lines of, I am a descendant of Woden, how dare you? You know, something like that. Or maybe the chroniclers just had some space to fill on the page and added a few too many ancestors between Ayla and Samuel. Ultimately, who knows? Nobody knows. And to make the story of Ayla even a little bit more strange, Bede says that Ayla was ruling in Diera at the time that Kent converted to Christianity, which, according to this source, would have actually been nine years after Ayla's death. And I might be going out on a limb here, but I'm guessing he wasn't a zombie king. So one of these sources has to be wrong. And unfortunately, we can't know for certain which one it is. So let's just say this. We now have a dynasty in Diera which is just to the south of Bernicia. And sometime around the end of the 6th century, Aela was king. And in 588, or maybe a little bit later, he died. That's about the best we've got. But something we know for certain is that he had a son by the name of Edwin. And remember that name. Edwin will turn out to be a rather important figure. But of course he would, right? I mean, he's Aela's son, and Aela was the king of De'era, so naturally his son will be king after he dies, right? Well, wrong, actually. Athelric took the throne. And Athelric might have been Edwin's brother, but things from this period are far from clear, especially in the north. So we can't be entirely sure how Athelric relates to Edwin. And maybe it's just me, but I'm starting to get the sense that maybe just maybe those kings in the north should just suck it up and invest in some of that incredibly expensive armor we talked about last week. I mean, they're dropping like flies up there. I realize that it's kind of a prestige item, but it seems a lot more necessary up north. Well, at least things in the south are more stable, right? I'm not sure. I mean, in 591, so three years after Ayla might have died, something happens in Wessex. We aren't given a lot of details, but what we're told is that Chol took over the throne of Wessex. Chol? Who the hell's this guy? Well, it seems like he's Cuth'a's son. And, a fun bit of needless confusion, Cuth'a is probably also the Cuth'wolf who fought at Bedkin Ford. Though to complicate matters, Chol'in's son is sometimes referred to as Cuth'a, and other times as Cuth'wine. So I bet that really cleared it up for you. Oh, Dark Ages. But at least we're pretty sure that he was Cuth'a's son, it's just a matter of who Cuth'a was. And now you're probably wondering how Chol sees the throne. Well, to start with, he might have had a claim to it. Looking at the way the line of kings worked in Wessex, it seems like so long as you can trace your lineage back to Cherditch, you could be eligible to rule. And the Chronicle often refers to these individuals as athlings. So Chol might have been an athling with a claim. And Chalin, despite being described as a Bretwalda, didn't seem like he was a particularly powerful monarch. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. He kept on winning all those battles and he expanded the territory. All he did was lose one battle. But what I mean by the fact that he didn't seem like he was very powerful, is that he's rarely described as doing anything on his own during battles. In fact, He's never described as doing anything on his own in battles. We hear of other war leaders commanding troops along with him, and sometimes even leading armies alone while the king is, oh, I don't know, chasing around some peasant girl or something. And in an era that prizes military command, sharing those responsibilities and possibly riding on the coattails of more gifted military commanders might not have done him any favors. Basically, what I'm getting at is that if there were other war leaders and other thanes, and they were doing all the heavy lifting, and Chalin really wasn't doing his duty as being a mighty war leader, I could see how they might start to get ideas. So seven years after the Battle of Fratherna, which really does seem like it was a bit of a disaster when you look at how the Chronicle discussed it, it seems like Chol had finally had enough of Chalin, and decided to upgrade from being an atheling to a kinning. Now, we don't have a clear indication of how it came about. William of Malmesbury, writing about 600 years later, would claim that it was a conspiracy of Angles and Brits, but I have no idea where he might have gotten that idea, and so I don't think he can be relied upon to be accurate since he was writing so much later. I mean, it's just as possible that King Athelbert of Kent was looking for a bit of payback and decided to nudge a rebellion along by backing Choll. Or maybe the people of Wessex were just sick of Chollin, and the coup occurred organically, Hell, there might have just been a bad harvest or any number of things. But whatever the reason, we have civil war. With tragically few details. And the following year, in 592, there was, quote, great slaughter, end quote, at Wodesberg, Which some have translated to Woden's Barrow. And what an awesome name for a battle site that is. And even now, it has a creepy name. Adam's Grave. Anyway, following this battle... Chalun was driven out of Wessex. So up in the north, in Bernicia, things are no less stable. <coughs> oh dear, there goes Hussa. And I know that we aren't sure if Hussa was a son of Ida, but I thought we should use the scream just in case. So now it's 592, and Aethelfrith of Bernicia began his rule. He was the son of Aethelric. Æthelric was the third son of Ida to take the throne, so now it seems like we've gone completely through the sons of Ida and we're on to the grandsons of Ida. Good times. Now Æthelfrith's ascension was probably the result of dynastic struggles. After all, it seems like Bernicia was awash in that kind of stuff. So maybe he pushed Hussa out of power and exiled his relatives. And I suspect that is exactly what happened, since it looks like there was some level of continuing internal struggle going on for a little bit. And it progressed to such a level that Herring, son of Hussa, led the men of Dalriada which was a British kingdom. But, you know, why hold grudges against neighboring British tribes when you're hungering to retake the throne? Well, he led those Brits against Aethelfrith in 608 at the Battle of Degsistan. But that didn't go too well, and it's actually a little bit ahead of our story. But basically what we're getting at here is, Bernicia, it's really not the best place to go on vacation, and if someone offers you a crown, you might not want to take it. Meanwhile, back down in the south in Wessex the following year, Chalin finally died, along with Quichelm and Krita. The problem is, is that we aren't given a lot of detail on exactly what happened. But if I had to guess, and I probably do, I'd say that Chalin was trying to retake the kingdom, possibly through some sort of insurgency, and it didn't work out. As for who Quichelm and Krita were, that's not clear. Their names seem like they could be tied to the ruling classes of Wessex, given the ruling dynasty's attachment to sea names, and they were clearly important enough to be mentioned in the chronicle, but they don't appear anywhere else in the record, so it's hard to say exactly what their relationship was. But what we can say is that from what we're told, it seems like despite the military successes earlier on, Cholin's reign ended in total confusion and disaster, possibly with a coup and some sort of insurgency that failed. Not very Bretwaldish ish in the end. But at least King Chol didn't last too long, Four years later, in 597, Chol of Wessex died, and he was succeeded by Cholwulf, son of Cutha, presumably his brother. Though which Cutha, I don't know. And by now, I hope you're getting the flavor of the early heptarchy. And that flavor is death, heavily seasoned with dynastic struggle. Tasty. Now, as you might have noticed on the website, I have a talkback feature where you can record your questions and send them to me. And actually, I have one right here.
1: Hi, Jamie. Um, My friend told me that Roman slaves only work 12 hours a week. Do you know if this is really true? I think I'd like to be a Roman slave in that case. Or maybe not. What do you think?
0: Well, I'm not entirely sure what source your friend is relying upon. But off the top of my head, that doesn't sound right to me at all. However, I'm hesitant to say that it never happened. Rome had a very long reign and held a lot of territory. Is it possible that someone had slaves with incredibly short work hours? I suppose that is possible. Is it possible that there were calls to reduce the work hours of slaves due to the fact that Romans were sometimes unable to find work because so much of the labor market was dominated by slaves? I can imagine that at least one pleb probably grumbled about reducing work hours. But as for a systemic hourly reduction to 12 hours per week that lasted for any length of time, I couldn't find any reference to that occurring in Britannia or elsewhere. But just to be safe, I checked in with friend of the show, Robin Pearson, of the history of Byzantium, and here's what he had to say.
1: I don't know what to say about this particular question. As far as I know, Roman slaves, Byzantine slaves, and slaves of all ages would have worked 12 hour plus days as opposed to... Only 12 hours a week. Uh, Certainly, if you were uh, a Roman slave out in the countryside, there'd be no question that you weren't out in the fields every day toiling away. And if you were someone slave in the city, I'm sure you'd be cleaning and preparing meals or accompanying your master on business around town. So it's very hard to imagine where this uh, information comes from. If your listener has a source for that, I'd love to hear it. I tried to imagine a situation where a Roman slave would only work 12 hours a week um, one scenario I could sort of imagine is in a house where say a very wealthy man someone perhaps on the, on the level of Crassus or someone of mega wealth would have hundreds of slaves to uh, show off his prestige and maybe you'd um, you'd have a very ceremonial role. Um, and perhaps, perhaps work less than 12 hours a day. Um, you know, Romans sometimes would have uh, multiple slaves doing different things, one to open the door, one to take your coat, as it were, one to lead you to dinner, and so on. But even then, I imagine most of those slaves were put to work elsewhere, you know, when the dinner party was over. The only other scenario I could think of was that the Romans were crazy for their holiday days. Um, festivals, uh, marking the occasions of battles or emperors or... Uh, later on, saints during the Christian era, and I suppose there were occasions when there would be multiple holiday days or, or the games were on and maybe a slave would be granted days off and there wasn't much work to do, but even then it's really hard to imagine anyone, <laughs> uh, anyone during Roman times who was a slave was working so little.
0: Now, if you have a question that you'd like answered, feel free to head over to the British History Podcast.com and use our talk back feature. And while you're there, go and check out our forums. All you have to do is go over to the British dot com, click get involved, and click forums. You can also join us on Twitter at, at British Podcast and on Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash British History. And that way, you won't be left in the dark if there's any kind of delays due to strange occurrences in my life. That, at the very least, led to a rather interesting hashtag. So if you like to keep your finger on the pulse, I suggest you do that. Anyway, I hope you had fun, and thanks for listening.